Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi there, and welcome to another episode of New Books in Neuroscience. My name is Joseph Fridman, and I'll be your host for this episode. I host on this channel with a wonderful set of, of, of co-hosts, including Anne-Sophie Barwich, Christopher Harris, John Griffiths, Victoria Reedman, and we are all mightily indebted to Marshall Poe and his team, uh, which runs new, the, the New Books Network, on which New Books in Neuroscience and wherever else this is syndicated is hosted. Um, it's my pleasure today to have uh, Eric Howell. Um, uh, of Tufts University uh, as my guest. He's the author of the recently released The Revelations. Um, you can find his work, I believe, in The Baffler, Believer? Yes, The Baffler... Um... Baffler Mag, Supersensorium. Um, you have a wonderful new paper on dreaming and a theory for dreaming that's just come out. Yes, uh, The Overfitted Brain Hypothesis. That was a lot of fun to work on. Awesome, and I'm super excited to chat with you today. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for for having me on. This is really exciting. Yeah, I'm pleased. And uh, I know this sounds a little weird. It'll probably come through in the in the audio quality. We're actually in your office at Tufts uh, for the first time since the beginning of the pandemic. That's right. This is my first visit back to my office since COVID began. So uh, full circle. And I'll say I'm also immensely grateful, Mazel Tov, on the on your firstborn. And I'm really glad we have a, an hour or two to just chat about the book. But <laughs> oh, thank you. I can imagine yes. how busy you are. Oh, it's exciting. You have multiple babies out at the same time in a certain way. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about the labor that went into into this book. <laughs> Nowhere near as intensive as uh, the actual labor, but um, uh, but it, you know, much longer. Um, you know, this was a, a project that took place over. 10 years almost. Um, and, you know, part of that is just me. Part of that is that the publishing industry does not move very quickly. Um, this was an idea that I had for a very long time, which was to do a book that had something um, that had a huge amount of kind of nonfiction, nonfiction in it. Um, I wanted to do, I wanted to do something that was kind of like the name of the rose books that I had loved um, which contained kind of an exploration of a world that you don't see too often in literary fiction. And in this case, you know, the thing that I actually knew about and, and was good at was science. So I wanted to kind of write a novel that would tackle science. And I don't just mean have science in it, but actually allow the forces of literature and the forces of the scientific to kind of play off one another uh, and create a, a duality. And I think you can do that in consciousness 
very particularly because uh, consciousness is the very thing that novelists uniquely have access to. You know, when you're when you're writing a novel, you have access to the inner uh, emotional, perceptual states of your characters, and you can refer to them directly. You can tell your reader about them, and that's completely impossible to do in a in a film. You can do it in ham-fisted ways, uh, but really, consciousness is the novelist's domain. But at the same time, there is a growing scientific study of consciousness. So therefore, uh, I thought that that is basically the best possible kind of ground in which to do a novel that's really about science and not the fruits of science, but the act of science, the actual activity of science. And I want to get into the way this novel deals with things like its protagonist and his, you know, waking up and falling asleep, the senses of interiority and things like that. I want to hear a little bit more about about you first. So the book is about um, a graduate student um, at a uh, in, the, in the lab of someone named, uh, I think, Antonio Moretti at University of Wisconsin, Madison. Well, the book isn't quite about that, but that's one of the characters backstories. Yes, 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 yes. This is a character that we become familiar with throughout the book. Yes. Um, you went to the University of Madison. Um, you worked with, I believe, Giulio Tononi. Can we learn a little bit about just your? Um, don't want to. I don't know if you want to call it a, a meandering or a, a directed path through consciousness studies and the work of emergence. A little bit about your academic career. Yeah, sure, absolutely. And I'll just say, you know, a, a big reason for that um, is that you know this is a book that yes, it is based on my experiences, but those experiences are put through the blender of of fiction um and many of the characters have things that are you know things that i've also done so as a simple example right i was at columbia for several years uh carmen one of the other main characters of the novel has a background from columbia right so um you know there's bits and pieces of me and in, in all the characters that are kind of um a requisite. And I like to write about things that I'm comfortable with. I mean, I think that when you're writing a novel about science, you really want to get the details right, because that's the easiest thing to get criticized on. Uh, as for kind of how I got to be in this world, um, I, I realized very early on that my talents were maybe more suited to uh, a field in which there is a huge amount of creativity at play instead of, say, like raw analytic ability or something like that. And, you know, one of the big unsolved questions in science is how the brain generates a stream of consciousness. We intimately know our own stream of consciousness, of course. We have kind of the intrinsic perspective on it. Um, but in another sense, it's very alien in that we don't have a very good scientific understanding of how the brain, uh, you know, choose your verb here, generates it, correlates to it, etc. right? Uh, causes it and so on. So I was interested in going to work on integrated information theory, which is with Giulio Cinoni, who's relatively well known in the field, simply because um, he was really the only one who I felt was actually doing serious scientific uh, work on trying to come up with a formal theory of consciousness. And uh, I still maintain that integrated information theory is the closest thing historically to what a theory of consciousness should look like. So it has all sorts of advantages that previous thinking about it didn't have. And um, that was a very kind of intellectually, you know, interesting time for me. Um, and, you know, I was there for a 
five years, and then I left for for New York. Um, and you know, so I I think that the you know when you're working on at when you're working in science at the edges of science, uh, you know, there is a lot there for a novelist to talk about. There are um, you know, there are the the dramas of it. There are the personal motivations. There are the big egos. The, there is the controversy and competition. And frankly, um, that stuff is probably necessary to a certain degree. And then one can always debate about where that set point should be. But I think that one thing I wanted to get across was within this novel is that science is an incredibly human discipline. So it is not, um, it is, these characters are very far from sort of the archetypal characters or scientists who show up in a TV show, you know, uh, like, uh, I don't know, Bones or something where, you know, I haven't seen very many episodes of Bones. So maybe I'm speaking out of turn, but, um, you know, these are kind of these like very dry experts who are not emotional. They're never like intuitive they're basically always the opposite of of what a descriptor like romantic. And that is not true. I have not found that to be true personally. And I don't think scientists are very objective in their personal lives. Um, and in some cases, that can be a boon. And an example would be people who are obsessed with solving a particular problem. In this novel, it's Kirk, who is obsessed with trying to come up with a scientific theory of consciousness. And it's kind of like his, his monomaniacal white whale within the novel. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate a book about um, academics that, you know, talks about the psychodrama of mentorship of, you know, the push pull uh, interaction with peers of, you know, um, yeah, I don't know. I think the yeah struggling with the demons of like not getting the thing, uh, out that you want or not being able to work on the thing that you want to work on or being able to work on it and then not going the way that that you want it to um there there are a bunch of different directions we can go in i'll i'll say i'll set up the book a little bit for folks that might not know about it so there's um this one one of these main characters is um uh, living out of his car uh, on the california coast or thereabouts finds out that he's won uh, a very prestigious fellowship uh, named after France, um, Francis Crick. Francis Crick. Yeah, the Crick Scholars. Uh, at NYU, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, he, along with seven uh, other peers from various walks of life, all interested in consciousness in some way or the brain in some way, descend upon New York City, where they find all sorts of drama happening in the background and then their own kind of academic desires and challenges kind of playing out in front of them. Yeah. And it's a, you know, it's, it's also a novel about New York and it's a novel about being young in New York. Right. Which is a very particular sort of conscious experience. Right. And it's also about, you know, when, you know, a, a group forms, uh, of, of new people or, or new scientists or like a new program starts, you know, I mean, something that's happening a lot in the novel is that they, the building that they're in has this primate lab and primate research kind of crops up over and over in the novel, as well as the dynamics of the primates themselves. And in a sense, they're kind of sorting through something similar, right? I mean, they're, 
there's not that much of a difference between kind of the monkeys in the basement and the scientists, you know, above. Uh, not in that they're, you know, immensely brutish or anything, but in the end, they're still trying to kind of figure one another out and, you know, kind of establish who's going to get to speak and so on. And, uh, uh, and, and I was just very interested in, in that process. I mean, anyone who's been to graduate school is familiar with it, but so is anyone who's, who's kind of gone anywhere and, and then started a, a, a new life with, with new people who are all around your same age. Um, and the, you know, I think that that's an example of, you know, it's, it's a novel about science, but it's, it's just set in that world. Right. So the, the stuff that shows up in a normal novel kind of shows up there. Yeah. Um, and can I, yeah. Can, did you ever work with, with primates? I did. Yeah. Yes. It, the um, animal experimentation is quite like an intense visceral part of different parts of the book. I, I, I worked with primates at NYU. Yeah. Um, there, there is a monkey lab right next to Washington Square Park, uh, if it's still there. And, uh, you know, I, I went there on as part of, a, I think it was a, it, yeah, it was an NSF fellowship, summer research fellowship, you know, so I was there for a brief time over the summer. Uh, this was when I was an undergraduate. So, mm. um, and yes, that was a lot of the the you know early details of the novel are are drawn from that experience you know when you're writing you are forced into an agnostic perspective or at least you should try to always take an agnostic perspective you know the the novel does present animal research and in a real visceral way of what it's actually like which is not always pretty by any means and you know, my goal with with that was to explore the thematic potential of animal research. You know, I mean, it is a there are sources of literary super that you can find in various places, right? And um, you know, I think the idea that you're going to uh, you know go out capture a, a primate, which is some you know somewhere kind of you know, some evolutionary ancestor effectively, and then you're going to open up its head and you're going to stick in this gigantic microscope that's bigger than it, and you're going to lower it down. Um, that is a really sort of absolutely crazy thing that humans do. And I wanted to capture some of that intensity and um, semantic density uh, with within the novel itself, because I just hadn't really seen anyone done do that before. Uh, so that was a big, a big driver of it. And again, yes, some of my experience cropping up, but also, you know, through, again, through a blender, right? So, um, you know, there, there are significant differences, although I, there is one scene in the novel in particular where a monkey almost effectively lobotomizes itself um, due to his brain being exposed. And that is something that, that really did happen or that got very close to happening. Yeah, that was a, that was a wildly intense scene to read. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's 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 a number of, of scenes like that in there. I mean, you know, I, th I think that you can't really talk about this novel. I mean, obviously, this is a, a new books in neuroscience, you know, so this description is going to involve a lot of neuroscience and we'll get into the weeds of of, uh, of all that sort of thing. But, you know, it is like a literary novel that is meant to function completely aside from anyone having any sort of background in neuroscience. Um, you know, there there are you know, elements of jargon in it, but frankly, 
you know, most readers will be able to either intuit what's being understood or kind of even if you do get lost, you can skip past the little bit that you got lost at. And uh, actually, my favorite readers responsive have been people, you know, who've, who've emailed me who are like, I'm uh, I'm an accountant in New Jersey and I know nothing about any of this stuff, but I really, really enjoyed the book. And I think that a big reason for that is that it is a, you know, it does have a lot of the trappings of a murder mystery. One of the Crick scholars dies under mysterious circumstances. The other is particularly this young postdoc named Carmen uh, from Columbia University. Um, she uh, kind of takes it upon herself to investigate this. And she kind of drags Kirk along into this investigation, although he's not maybe particularly interested in it. He's much more interested in just solving consciousness scientifically. Yeah, I, I mean, I think um, a lot of the ways that these characters get to arguing, it could be, you know, people in, you know, a 19th century novel in Europe arguing about religion or about industry or about the the topics of the day, the things that these people are particularly kind of incensed about, um, I think will be familiar to people who have spent time in, you know, an institute or university or college that is interested in psychology or philosophy of mind. There's a lot of references, I think, um, both explicit and implicit to classic questions, classic papers, um, images that, you know, probably mimetically spread and haunt people as they go to sleep or, or walk home from their lectures. Um, but yeah, so I, I guess I'm 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 interested in what uh, yeah the there, there there is some goal I think to educate and to 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 be a bit didactic or to pedagogical about like um, complicate people's views of what consciousness studies is at the moment what it could be I think um, at least the main at least Kirk's goal uh, in, in a lot of his monologues to himself or to, to other characters is to inform and set them straight on unconsciousness studies i think yeah in a way in a way that i think that's familiar to folks that have started to take the field seriously themselves very true and i i completely agree i mean a lot of this is inspired by maybe one might say less contemporary forms of novels and more older forms of novels so you know the the, the classic example is something like moby dick which contains just a huge amount of just how whaling works and actually, because whaling is so thematically interesting from a literary perspective, it actually ends up kind of informing the the themes of the book, right? So it all just kind of eats 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 on itself. And uh, you know, at least my goal, right? It's always very extremely dangerous. Like I'm no Melville, right? But my goal is to do something similar for science, wherein you're taking these scientific aspects and these debates. But in the end, you have to be very careful because they have to be in service of literature, right? If I if I wanted to do a nonfiction book, I would have just written a nonfiction book. So it's not really, it would be an incorrect read of the book. And there are hints at this throughout the book to just take whatever Kirk, who's a bit of an intellectual gadfly, he's almost like a Diogenes sort of character, uh, to take him too seriously. I mean, it, uh, th th there's some scene relatively early on where he's kind of making this great convincing argument as he's playing a game of pool and his, his kind of points of the argument are kind of lining up with him kind of slowly winning this pool game. Uh, and then right at the end of the pool game, he, he scratches. And I think that that's a, you know, it's a very kind of hint from the author of being like, this is a character who can be very overconfident 
and is very interesting, but you know, you don't necessarily take everything that he says as gospel truth or that all his criticisms are correct. Much of those criticisms are of neuroscience. They're of issues around replicability. They're of issues around not taking consciousness seriously enough as a phenomenon that neuroscience needs to understand. They're of even questioning whether or not there is that much beyond neuroscience other than figuring out how the brain generates consciousness. And I think that those are some, you know, legitimate critiques to a certain degree of the field. So I'm glad that they're in there and that people can be exposed to them. But I don't think people need to walk away from the book thinking a certain way. I mean, you know, in a sense, a big theme of the book is about fit, like intellectual failure. I mean, that, that, that is a really significant theme of the book. Um, so it's, it's, it's really kind of not there to, to convince people. But of course, you know, some of the arguments I personally kind of agree with more than others. And, and there's definitely a sense, I think, you know, um, these characters' lives, even when they're not in the lab, is engulfed in part because of the, the drama of what happened to their friends and of what's going on with them. But their, their work, to a certain degree, um, is a lens that kind of refracts every single one of their experiences and is like a, you know, draw. Some characters are more mon monomaniacal than others. But in part, I think um, the book is a wonderful commentary for people outside of academia about how intellectual professional issues in academia can, you know, really this type of work that, you know, people do can really dominate like a very significant part of their lives and how slight changes in the texture of that work can just um, you know, uh, crescendo, you know, and like rattle, rattle, you know, like a person's very like self-worth or what it is that they're doing. Yeah. Certainly these are all people who take being a scientist very, very seriously. Um, and, and I, and I've found that that's generally true. Like a lot of people, particularly people who kind of, you know, eventually kind of worm their way up to the top of the hierarchy are people who take it incredibly seriously and, and kind of lose their their personality in it. And some of the book is about the, the dangers of that. I mean, a recurring theme that crops up is the lack of personal relationships that, that people can have. Um, there's a couple scenes, but I think one is kind of a brief jump into a, a Nobel Prize winner's head and kind of about, you know, him and his, his wife going to get this prize. Um, and then kind of just thinking about what, how amazing that trip was, but then, you know, they, they never had kids. And so he kind of ends up coming home to this empty house and it's cold. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, yes, you won the Nobel prize, but you're kind of just alone in this bedroom and, um, you don't have very many friends or family uh, is kind of implied there. So that is, again, I, I think a a recurring theme. And, you know, I just wanted to treat science in the way that I've seen other disciplines treated in literature. Like, I think that there's more than enough there, there uh, for, for fiction to bite hold of and tackle. And the key is always trying to do it in such a way that you don't overpower the, the literary side of it. I mean, it's very easy to do, you know, when science comes into art, it's like this big it's almost like this big bully wearing a capital T truth t-shirt, you know, that just kind of muscles aside everybody. And it's not that literature should 
look at science and think, oh man, how can I take this big thing down? Uh, you know, it's like, you, you know, you're, you're not equipped for that. Um, but it is like, how can I um, have something interesting to say about it that is novel from the outside? And, you know, a big, a, a big way in which I tried to balance that was just by making the characters um, almost in a sense, unrealistic. I mean, I, they, it's not really a purely realist novel in the traditional sense. I mean, it's also a novel where, depending on your interpretation of what's going on at various points, there may or may not be a monster chasing some of the, the people. So there's elements of magical realism in there. Um, and that sort of magical realism, both within the, the characters themselves, um, you know, one of the characters, it's implied that um, um, she's so pretty that people might even freeze like they almost turn to stone when they look at her like she's some sort of medusa kirk is constantly being referenced as a as a centaur because he's torn between two different worlds so there's this element of kind of uh magical realism that permeates the novel and it grows the closer they get to maybe you might even say understanding consciousness kind of particularly the closer kirk gets the weirder events around them become um, almost as if, you know, the secret of consciousness is like pushing in from this other world, almost in like the way that a Lovecraftian, you know, Shithulu entity would. And um, I really uh, enjoy that sort of, yeah, that sort of uh, knocking uh, uh, that's, that's throughout the book. And that's the sort of thing that I'm thinking about when I'm writing it, right? I'm not thinking, man, how can I convince people that neuroimaging might have, you know, contemporary neuroimaging methods might have some problems, right? That's not really the the first thing I'm thinking. Yeah, it's wonderful. I, I haven't, um, I don't know, it, maybe it's an, an kind of impoverished uh, media consumption taste. I think like the thing this most reminded me of in the way that the science interacts with the art is something like devs, um, where, you know, that's a, a television show on Hulu. I saw that, it. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I'm an Alex Garland fan. Yeah. Uh, someone recently asked me if you had to choose someone, you know, to direct some adaptation of it. I was like, Alex Garland in a second. But yes, I mean, and first of all, Devs was, you know, it's, it's different in everything except you're right, some sort of tone or atmospheric connection. Yeah. Just the way that like, um, if you go to the kernel of like what drives people in love and crazy about like a scientific topic and then maybe explode that out into like a real world and a real place. I think there you, you're seeing commentary on like Silicon Valley and the tech world and, you know, the way that, um, yeah, tech companies interact with governments and with, you know, people living in, in the cities around them. Something like this also picks, you know, uh, a, a, a culture somewhere and offers a lot of commentary on the, the situation of everybody kind of living living around them, but through the eyes of specifically like a certain set of tools and the techno-scientific uh, dream that these folks are trying to work to realize. Yeah, it's very strange because, um, you know, a lot of people pick up this book or think they're going to get some sort of science fiction out of it. And it's actually made it a little bit diff difficult for the publishing industry to figure out hmm. like what it is or where to place it, sure. right? Uh, how to understand it. Uh, but it's it's not actually science fiction, right? It's just about nothing in the book is science fiction. They're right? just scientists. It's it's just about scientists, and um, you know, it, and and the actual process. And actually, funnily enough, if you look through science fiction, there are some cases of science fiction writers like Ursula K. Le Guin, 
um, writing about scientists. Um, I think that's The Dispossessed, which is a great sci-fi novel about a, a scientist. But actually, scientists themselves and the process of science doesn't really show up very much. It's all about kind of the tools and the progress. It's just stuff set in the future, right? So um, anyways, it seems like a very small uh, genre in a certain sense, but uh, I also think that it contains all sort of the trauma of of humanity in it. Yeah, and then I think one of the things that you'd get to do in a literary form, um, specifically a novel or maybe something like a TV show, something where you get this kind of serialized repetitive look at these characters encountering each other again and again is some of the stuff that you might not get in um you know formal org hierarchy charts or academic you know like quitlet or something else right where all of that is to some degree about the huge ways in which um you know maybe this sterile antiseptic um profession is actually deeply personal involves a lot of like you know, blood, sweat, tears, guts, bile, um, um, other bodily fluids, uh, surely among people working together. Um, but in a book like this and in a fictional setting, you actually get to explore a lot of that. Um, the romance, the psychodrama, these people, um, yeah, the way that I think like relationships form and that those, um, you know, might proceed or prefigure scientific projects or come after them. Um, I think there's a, yeah, a real look at like, just the relationships between different people again it it is a job but like that go day in day out into this very kind of time consuming energy consuming work yeah and i think actually i think in the book it might be carmen who thinks this i forget if it's carmen or kirk who thinks this but there's this notion of scientists as contemporary priests mm. you know there is always a sense and I think one should be honest about this, that, and this is why people say things like everyone's kind of content with the fact that scientists don't make that much money. You know, you'll hear this, you're like, oh, you know, you can go into science, but you won't make that much money, but you'll be able to do science, right? And then it's like, well, wait a minute, I would say that about almost any other job, right? It doesn't quite make sense. And um, I think one of the characters has this thought of, it's kind of like being a, a, a contemporary priest, right? It, it is like a secular priesthood in that you're trying to understand the ontology of the universe. And it is so uh, exciting. And some people are kind of called to it. At the same time, I don't think this is a book that fetishizes science or scientists. I think it's very, very critical of them in many, many instances. So I wanted to kind of get those two things across, right? That it's incredible to live this life of ideas and people's personalities become bound up in it. Uh, while at the same time, they're within, you know, this huge structure, which is contemporary academia, which has some good, very good aspects to it. And also some really kind of terrible aspects to it. And people's personalities kind of bounce around between this priestly draw and then the realities of you know the bureaucracy of managing a lab so i i wanted to turn to um one of the structure of the book or maybe one of the devices of the book every chapter is a day which means that you get to experience um a moment of awakening um and uh something else um so I wanted, yeah, did that, was that originally in the structure? Did that come about when you realized that, you know, it would be neat to have 
many, you know, forms of eyes opening and then <laughs> eyes maybe closing, um, something else. Yeah, every every chapter begins with uh, a waking scene and every chapter actually begins with the same three words, which is Kirk wakes up. Um, I wrote a lot of different waking scenes. Uh, you know, the, hopefully they are not boring, right? Most are about a paragraph. Uh, hopefully they're kind of differentiated enough to be interesting. You know, uh, people talk about things like a stream of consciousness novel. So this isn't really a stream of consciousness novel. And that's actually because I don't think that stream of consciousness accurately reflects consciousness, probably accurately reflects a baby's consciousness, uh, which William James referred to as a booming, buzzing confusion, which, you know, if you read James Joyce, you'll get the same thing. Uh, you know, adult consciousness is structured. So it's, it, 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 it has a deep structure to it and it has a rhythm to it. And that rhythm is, I think, for most of us in the modern world, it is the weekly one. So like, what day is it? Hey, it's Tuesday. What do I do on Tuesdays, right? And uh, I just, first of all, I'd never seen a book do that. I think that there are 32 chapters in this book. Each chapter is a subsequent day. So I think it's like a month and a day um, for the entire novel. And, you know, why do writers choose to have what might be called an arbitrary constraint. Because by the way, when you do that, you make your job way harder, right? Because you're not, you're suddenly, you're not allowed to play with time. You can't just say six months pass, right? You're not allowed to play with time. You're not allowed to do all these things that you can do. Uh, the book is written in the present tense. Uh, and yet, you know, I think that it, it does have, you know, I worked very hard for it to have pacing, right? For it to be like, okay, you're actually pretty interested in what's actually going to happen next because of, you know, these strange events that are going on, you know, around these characters. Um, and so, you know, as to why novelists do stuff like that, I think the, the only answer I can give is that when you're looking at a blank page, it's completely unconstrained. And so it's infinite. It's just this infinite white place. There's no up or down. It's like that scene in the matrix, right? Where, where Neo's in that pure infinite white space. And that's what the blank page is for a novelist. And so then the question is, how do you overcome that? And you start by, by adding constraints and constraints then partition up what was infinite becomes partitioned because then you say, okay, even though I don't know what's going to happen next, I know that it has to fit these constraints. And so this, the infinite dimensional space I'm dealing with suddenly has like an up and a down and a before and an after and so on. And so all these Constraint techniques are really, I would argue, orientating techniques that writers use to motivate themselves uh, and and cure their fear of the blank page. I mean, at least I think subconsciously that's that's why we do it. Uh, but you know, I, the the spiel I give is that, of course, it sets you next to the consciousness of the the characters, and uh, you know, for a while you're you're with Kirk, and then you're actually with Carmen for a little bit with her waking and sleepings. Um, um, and, you know, so I just think it's a good way to affirm a point of view. And that's what the novel is all about, points of views, trying to understand points of views. Of human beings, of animals, of, you know, different complexity, um, maybe even of clumps of cells. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the characters yeah, end up with their own personal cerebral organoid at one point. Um, which again, you know, sounds like science fiction, but it's, it's not now. And, um, uh, in, in one case, the cerebral organoid outlives the person it, it comes from. Right. So, and, and fr frankly, uh, 
a big part of the novel is just that it's very difficult to make it's very difficult to make moral choices. It's very difficult to make personal choices. It's very difficult to make um, um, to to make choices about what one should or shouldn't value just in general. If you don't have a theory of consciousness, like a real theory, like we, we don't actually like is is an ant conscious. We can all argue about it. No one has any actual idea that will depend entirely on what our scientific theory of consciousness eventually tells us if we do get one, which hopefully we will. But that it's like, okay, well, that may sound like who cares? It's just an ant. It's like, okay, well, what about a chicken? And now suddenly this question has a host of moral kind of implications to the degree of chicken consciousness. Um, one could be Descartes and say that animals are automata. One could be the opposite of Descartes and say that actually maybe animals are whipped by more wild emotions than we possibly have access to because we have this suppressive, inhibitive prefrontal cortex. In which case, one could be the opposite of Descartes and think that man is the automata in a sense, right? Certainly, that would flip much of our moral calculus about what we what we eat and how we operate in the world. And um, we don't even know really what the ontology of the universe is because we have this big unexplained phenomenon, right? It's kind of like dark matter or something, right? It's like, you know, you can say you understand the universe, but if you can't see 95% of it, then you really actually can't say that. The universe might be very different in a very weird way that you don't understand. And consciousness is the exact same, right? The universe might be very weird in a way we can't understand. And that implication is kind of spread like jam, you know, over the bread of the novel. It's a terrible metaphor. I'll take it. <laughs> um, where can people follow you? Where can people learn more about the book? Well, they can learn more about the book um, by going to my website, which is Eric, E-R-I-K-P-H-O-E-L.com. They can also just type my name, Eric Hoel, into Google, and uh, I will pop up. And um, I, I do a, a blog, uh, and I'm working on a nonfiction book as well. Uh, and, you know, I've got plenty more planned, but I think that this book will always have a very, very special place in my heart. Uh, I always recommend it to people as, um, well, you certainly have never read anything like it. So <laughs> it's worth checking out just for that alone. Um, and I'll, I'll agree. Yeah. Whether, whether you're in neuroscience or not, this is a yeah, wonderful set of ideas to get lost in for a little bit. Oh, I so appreciate um, that. Um, and Eric is also on uh, Clubhouse on occasion. And I believe if you're in Boston, there might be a chance to, to meet him. Yes, of course. Always happy to to meet readers and uh, uh, other you know professionals in this area. Uh, the thing in July. Oh yes, of course. And uh, there's also going to be uh, if this comes out in time. There's also going to be a party, uh, a book, actual physical book launch. Even though the book has been out for about a month and a half, two months now, there's going to be a party on July 3rd at Jabwalki Book Bookstore in Newburyport, Massachusetts. Um, and we're going to have a band and there's going to be free drinks and stuff like that. So you should absolutely come. Uh, and it's also in a sense, hopefully knock on wood, COVID willing a post post COVID party. <laughs> Amen. Um, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll make sure to mark that. Oh, that'd be awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much, Joseph. This has been a blast. <laughs>